0: Making sustainability accessible for all, building a more inclusive financial system, addressing the social emotional needs of children who will win the 12th annual John Edwardson social new venture challenge find out on June 1st more than 175 thousand dollars in prizes is at stake SNVC has jump-started more than 150 game-changing mission-driven ventures who have gone on to raise more than 165 million dollars tune in and see you Chicago social entrepreneurs in action register at bit.ly slash SNVC 2022. Chris Blattman has interviewed some of the most dangerous people in the world. I do talk to mafia
1: bosses and gang leaders and crime lords and rebel warlords.
0: From sub-Saharan Africa to Latin America, Blattman has sat down with violent actors to figure out one
1: perplexing question. In that moment, talking to them, I'm able to somehow engage with them as like a human being and like extract the information I want. Blatman has been obsessed with the question, why do people go to war? Vladimir Putin
0: has just addressed the Russian people moments ago announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation, in his words, to demilitarize Ukraine.
1: I say like, listen, war's ruinous. What began as a series of peaceful protests against the repressive regime of Bashar al-Assad has turned into a brutal civil war coalition forces
0: have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war.
1: How and why did America get involved in Vietnam in the first place? Therefore, there's a huge incentive to avoid it.
0: The situation in which no word given by Germany's ruler could be trusted and no people or country could feel itself safe had become intolerable
1: for one reason or another,
0: we ignore the cost. Blattman is an economist and a political scientist at the University of Chicago. And he synthesized all of his research and the research of others into a counterintuitive
1: book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. So I called it Why We Fight, not Why We War, because you know, Political scientists might say, well, you know, war is between political actors. And so you're gonna also talk about gangs.
0: The gangs are fighting a war over turf,
1: drugs, and money. This bustling marketplace in North Karachi is at the center of a gang war.
0: The crackdown on gangs intensifies in El Salvador.
1: And organized crime. And maybe you're gonna talk about ethnic groups and villages and, and all these different levels. And I said, right, that's, I wanna talk about what all of these things have in common. Like they're really different. Let's talk about what we learned from them generally. And to do that, I'm gonna just have the barest bone definitions, which is just this thing we shouldn't, this thing that's incredibly ruinous, prolonged fighting, why do we do it? Most people think that war is easy to fall into
0: and that peace is difficult to maintain. But Blattman argues that war is actually really
1: rare and that peace is a lot simpler than you think. Whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, I mean, we care a lot. We we wanna know why that happened. Could they have been prevented? Uh, what went wrong? Because we don't want to end up in another one of those. And then when we have an ally, or you know, an informal ally in this case, which is the Ukraine, we want to know how to that? Why did that happen? Will it stop? So all the problems, which I'm sure we'll talk about that lead to war, they have solutions. From the University of Chicago Podcast Network, this is Big Brains,
0: a podcast about the pioneering research and the pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. On this episode, why countries go to war and how we can choose the road to peace. Chris Blatman wasn't always going to study violence. He was originally a development economist studying how growth can happen in difficult circumstances. This took him to some of the most dangerous places on the planet, but he's never really been bothered
1: by danger. My mom would ask me this question, obviously. And I would say, Mom, like I lived in New Haven for a while. I lived in New York in the Morningside Heights, which are all places where there, things can happen, right? There might, you might get mugged, you might, but it probably won't happen and you'll probably be fine and people live here happy lives. And I say, it's basically just like those places. It's just, it's no more dangerous than where I live, which didn't have the answer I <laughs> hoped for, because my mom lives in Ottawa, I was like, why do you live in these unsafe places? What did bother him on his research trips?
0: Meeting the victims of violence he would be interviewing along
1: the way. So talking to people who have been victimized for the, Victim of some terribly unjust thing is really hard. You do get hardened to it over time in a way that's not actually maybe not good. My wife and my often my research partner is a counseling psychologist. And so it certainly helps be married to a counseling psychologist. If not, I think any researcher who deals with victims should have one.
0: Blattman quickly realized that a society's growth didn't depend on wealth and opportunities, but on safety from violence. People and businesses aren't able to specialize, trade, or invest when they anticipate everything could be gone tomorrow. As he writes in the
1: book, nothing destroys progress like violence. I tell people, if you want to remember one thing about the idea, it's that war is ruinous, and we go to war when we ignore those costs, when our leaders or our society, for some reason, overlook those costs. Blattman
0: says that we have been misled into thinking that war is inevitable and hopeless, But more often than not, enemies loathe one another in peace.
1: Yeah. No, enemies loathe in peace is like a tagline that I like to repeat. Blattman
0: is a game theorist, and he's built models to explain why war is rare. Using these models have helped him identify the five main reasons we slip into war and the three roads that lead to peace. First, we need to understand the concept that's foundational to all of his models, and it's called bargaining range.
1: It's an oversimplified concept, but it's it comes to us from game theory, and and that sounds intimidating. Actually, all the I- ideas in the book, anyone who's ever played poker, they kind of intuitively got. They're not hard concepts. They just people just need to learn to spot them in the wild. And but the basic principle is to say, look, there's a pie we're fighting over. Close your eyes and picture a circle to represent our pie. Could be land, could be a policy decision, whatever it is, we both want it.
0: Let's say this particular pie is worth $100, so slap a big hundred on top of your circle. And we both have the means to
1: you know, seize it militarily.
0: Now picture team A and team B. They both own half the pie, and they each have a 50-50 chance of winning
1: the whole pie in a war. We can either agree how we're gonna split that up without fighting, or we can fight, destroy a share of that pie, and then one of us gets it, or we have to split it anew. In the war to get that pie, $20 of it is going to be destroyed,
0: meaning that after a war, the pie will be worth only $80, not the 100
1: that we were trying to win. Yeah, and so the part of it destroyed is just sort of like the peace dividend. It's just like the free spoils that we get from avoiding that path.
0: And since war is a 50-50 shot at a damaged $80 pie, fighting is worth $40 at best. Or you can both split the pie for $50.
1: It's simple math. War is more costly. And so it creates a whole range of things that we prefer to war. And so the the more costly is war, the more the range of opportunities there are that open up for us to find some way to split this thing that we would prefer to do over fighting.
0: Blatman saw this firsthand when he was studying gangs in Medellin, Colombia.
1: In a city like Medellin, Colombia, where there are hundreds and hundreds of extremely heavily armed gangs competing over extremely valuable territory for extortion and drug rents, that they have a homicide rate that's far below most American cities.
0: Even gangs understand the
1: logic of the bargaining range. Nobody makes money in a drug fight, so gangs everywhere hate to go to war. That's true in Chicago. And it was, to me, a really powerful example of how all of these things that, forces that happen at an international level are happening at lower levels. Think of this, listen, I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight.
0: Nobody would buy that. So I think you, you picked the right title. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, I, I just want to say that, Starting from this idea that the main incentive towards peace is the cost of war is just a useful starting point. It helps us see why we fight through a different lens. And it's this lens that we fight when we ignore those costs. And as it turns out, like even in some ways, I was surprised, like there's this vast literature. I'm just sort of drawing on decades of research and it turns out almost all of these reasons of which there are a zillion boil down into sort of five logical ways we overlook the costs. And so I'm just trying to give people a way to organize the madness. Okay, so let's get
0: into those five factors that lead us to overlook these costs. The first is unchecked leaders.
1: Which is to say our leaders aren't accountable to the people, which they never are, even in a perfect democracy. or Maybe not perfect, but all are democracies. democracy, but especially in an autocracy like Putin, especially a personalized dictator. Vladimir Putin blames the West for Russia's war on Ukraine. Russia's more or less a system of personal rule, as are some other countries. That means that there's all those costs of war, he doesn't bear a lot of them.
0: Sanctions that impose economic pain on Russia will ultimately impose no economic pain on him. He will stay one of the richest men to have ever walked the face of the earth, no matter how much the rest of the Russian economy and the Russian people suffers.
1: You can think of European monarchs who are unaccountable to their own people and were just as ready to go off to war for their own strategic interests or for their own glory seeking, right? You could think about African warlords who are seeking diamond wealth or the exploitation of resources that create these war economies and then continue at war, not because it's in the interest of their side, but because it enriches them. And you can think of a a democratic president. They're not perfectly checked, right? And, And they might have a private interest in launching a war to get some rally around the flag effect. Now, whether or not starting a war rallies people around the flag makes you popular and gets you through the next election cycle is empirically doubtful. But the fact is, there's a lot of presidents think it's true and that's all they need to do to sort of, to sort of maybe be too ready to use violence. So the constant theme here with unchecked interest is that some leader who's imperfectly accountable is much too ready to use violence because they're not considering all the costs. Or they might even have a private incentive that goes against the interests of their group, and they're willing to ignore those costs to pursue what's good for them, but not for everybody.
0: Your second one you talked about was intangible incentives.
1: When we say um, Putin is seeking personal glory or a place in history, that's an intangible incentive. He's willing to pay the cost of war because he gets something ethereal that makes it worth the price, and that's even easier for him to take his country to war to do because he's unchecked. He's willing to make his people pay the price of war, in order to achieve this ethereal thing.
0: The, the other one, uh, if I can go to number three, you talk about is you characterize it holistically as misperceptions.
1: This is basically to say that not only can a say a leader like Putin have some grandiose vision of national glory or personal glory, but that he perceives the world in a biased way. That he's either getting poor information by dint of being an autocrat who— has to insulate himself. A U.S. official says the U.S. believes that Vladimir Putin is being quote, misinformed by his own advisors about how badly the Russian military is performing in Ukraine as well as the crippling impact of Western sanctions. Or he's simply overconfident and 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 rational, but rational based on really wrong information. Right? So he misperceives the situation, he, he overestimated Power on military underestimated Ukrainians. Which leaves just two more, uncertainty
0: and commitment problems.
1: The remaining set are strategic, in the sense that they're cold, calculating the self-interested. We tend to not understand and undervalue these strategic explanations. This sort of gets us into uncertainty. This is where I think it's really tricky. Like what's a misperception and what's just the fact that we live in an incredibly uncertain world? Like I think it's safe to say Very few people predicted that the West would be this unified in sanctions.
0: The economic sanctions leveled against Russia by the U.S. and its allies are the harshest ever handed down.
1: Very few people predicted that the Ukraine would be this unified. Everyone knew it was possible. This was totally within the realm of possibilities. I don't know that anyone considered this particularly likely. Vladimir Putin apparently thought that he'd roll right in over
0: Ukraine, roll right in and get right out, right? It sure, it hasn't worked out that way. Blattman says that uncertainty has played a huge role in another conflict that we're all familiar with, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict.
1: There's a political scientist at Northwestern named Wendy Perlman who makes a very persuasive argument that the years of violence have actually been ones when each side has been fragmented. There's a faction, so we call them splinter factions, we call them spoilers. And those groups have, for their own private reasons, ideological or strategic, have decided to sort of stir the pot, launch violence. And then the other side looks at that and says, and there's uncertainty here, right? They're like, is that the whole, are they, is that really a splinter group? Is it not? Can I trust my counterpart that they can't control these people? And so I think that interplay of these, not the core leader, but these splinter groups, their unchecked interests. The difficulty of holding those coalitions together and the uncertainty about whether or not that's really representative of your enemy or not explains a lot of the years of intense violence.
0: Misperceptions and uncertainty also creates a signaling problem. If you don't want to go to war but your opponent doesn't believe or understand that you're strong enough to fight back and destroy part of the pie, what do you do? Well, this was a big problem that was facing
1: Ukraine. The strategic element of uncertainty, which is really important, is that well everyone knows how costly this is going to be and so the west and the ukrainians just spent a lot of time saying no 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 no, no. we're really strong like on all these things we're strong we're resolved we're unified the bottom line is this the united states and our allies and partners will support the ukrainian people we will hold russia accountable for its actions the west is united and resolved And the problem is, is that from Putin's point of view, he's thinking, well, you'd say that anyways, even if you weren't right. This is where every poker player understands this, right? You don't know your opponent's hand. They seem to be, they seem to be playing aggressively. Are they bluffing? You don't know, right? And so your optimal strategy is not to fold every time.
0: Blatman says that this actually explains many of the violent dynamics that we see in gang culture, like needing to maintain a violent reputation or small skirmishes that break out. They're meant to be impossible to fake signals to your opponent. And although these things themselves are violent, in a twisted way, they actually help avoid war.
1: For 20 years, Putin tried to do everything he could short of invasion to co-opt Ukraine, assassinations, dark money, propaganda separatist support. Like the list goes on and on and on. So peace isn't just. The second strategic factor and the final road to
0: war is called commitment problems. We'll explore that plus the three roads to peace after the break. Have you ever wondered who you are but didn't know who to ask? Well, then join Professor Eric Oliver as he poses the nine most essential questions for knowing yourself to some of humanity's wisest and most interesting people. Nine Questions with Eric Oliver, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Big Brains is supported by the University of Chicago Gram School. Are you a lifelong learner with an insatiable curiosity? Join us at Graham and access more than 50 open enrollment courses every quarter in literature, history, religion, science, and more. We open the doors of UChicago to learners everywhere. Expand your mind and advance your leadership. Online and in-person offerings are available. Learn more at graham.uchicago.edu slash bigbrains. The final strategic factor that leads conflict to turn into war is something called commitment problems.
1: World War I and the U.S. invasion of Iraq are two classic examples that I talk about in the book, where I think we're far too quick to sort of say, oh, this is a misperceptions in ideology and not see the strategic logic that that brought brought these nations to war. You know, the, the famous book on, on World War I is, I think, The Sleepwalkers. And it's about these nationalistic, sort of naive, inept, European leaders marching their countries to war, thinking it'll be short and easy. That's a hard explanation for four years of trench warfare, right? Because it, maybe that gets you into war on day one. I don't think it's a persuasive argument for war on day, whatever, 812. The World War I is sort of the classic example of the commitment problem where, where, where your adversary can't commit to something in future, and thus it makes sense for you to, to invade now. And uh, the way that story is told is the idea that Russia was rising basically germany was at its peak power and in steady decline and russia once risen would be able to roll back a lot of the advantages and gains and things that germany had germany could threaten russia to say well give that up or we're going to invade now to lock in our advantage and then it's a commitment problem only to the extent that russia can't credibly commit not to rise and not to hand over power so it's it's difficult right it would mean maybe ceding some regions or 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 a set of things that were, in some sense, militarily or politically very difficult. As Blatman writes in the
0: book, imagine you're in that scene of the movie with another robber. You just get done getting the score and he pulls a gun on you, but it clicks and misfires. You have a split-second decision. Do you try to talk it out or lunge at him? That's the commitment problem.
1: You know, there's an old Iraqi saying, which is, if you think your enemies can eat you for dinner, you have to eat them for lunch. So that's the commitment problem in a nutshell. Speaking of Iraq? And that's that by the way is sort of how a lot of people think about the Iraq war. A preemptive war against Iraq would be a terrible mistake. There's mis- misperceptions to be sure. There were unchecked leaders to be sure. But fundamentally um, there was a worry that there was a very small, but not that small, probability that, that Saddam Hussein could restart a nuclear weapons campaign, uh, uh, research program. Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime
0: are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction.
1: We knew his incentives to do so were incredibly powerful because it would remake the entire power structure in the Middle East.
0: There was no way for Saddam to credibly commit that he wouldn't build nuclear weapons.
1: If you think your enemy is going to eat you for dinner and basically completely turn the tables in the Middle East, you eat them for lunch. And that's not a sufficient explanation for the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but it was important. And to ignore it arguably sort of misunderstands what drives war and then sort of will complicate our efforts to stop it.
0: I think that this is where you talked about escape hatches. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I think this is a really important idea. There's actually a lot of ways to get out of the commitment problem. There probably was something Russia could have done. There's this powerful strategic incentive for, for Germany to eat Russia for lunch before they can be eaten for dinner. So they should have been able to, they should have tried to commit in some way. There often are paths away from that commitment problem, ways to get the commitment, but they're narrow and they're few. And that's when the uncertainty, the misperceptions, the flawed leaders, that's when they matter. We can only sleepwalk into war when I think the strategic fundamentals have narrowed our options for a peaceful deal to something that's like a sliver. And so there's almost never one reason for a war. Nothing's totally psychological. Nothing's totally strategic. There's usually an interaction between the two.
0: If these are the five factors that can cause the bargaining range to fall apart, Blattman also thinks there are three factors that can help hold it together.
1: If you, you know, if you live on a busy street, you, and you, you're worried about people driving by too fast and hitting your kids or something, you put up speed bumps. You still tell your kids to like walk both sides. You know, you're still taking cautions. It's not gonna like, there's still gonna be some people who are gonna speed for various reasons, um, but you you maybe have built in a little bit of protection. The first speed bump, institutions. You know, the rules and enforcers is like a good good example. Like in, in, in a country like the United States, we have the state right we have police we have courts human societies have been really good at constructing these kinds of systems
0: now you use an example again back to Medellin uh, in Bello
1: because it's Medellin they would with their pais accent they'd say a uh, Bejo
0: Bejo okay
1: <laughs> no it's okay uh so Bejo is actually just an area just on the just to the north of the city proper where there's two powerful rival gangs that control both the prisons and the territory out on the street. You know, there, there are sort of passions and incidents, and, and I talk about a, a brawl over a game of billiards in, in one of the prison rooms, uh, prison cell blocks, where one side pulls out their guns, fires on the other. Now, why they have guns in prison is, is a probably a whole other podcast, but, what happens is sort of you can kind of imagine there's a cycle of revenge killings. And also each gang activates their alliances and all four hundred, you know, gangs and mafias in the city sort of line up behind one side or the other and they prepare for a citywide war. And this is when those big crime bosses come in and are like, no, 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 no. This is not gonna happen. Uh and all of these mistakes that you made, all of these passions, all of the strategic errors you've made, the fact that you're ignoring these costs for all these different reasons, we're gonna provide some counterincentives and some ways to overcome that. And we're actually gonna help you find a bargain, and they did. Because everyone has a stake in peace, especially the kingpins who are the wholesalers for the drugs, they actually have a stake in building institutions and governing to prevent that war from happening. So just like we have international sanctions regimes, they have domestic sanctions. They have have sanctions regimes to sanctions gangs that that ignore these incentives for peace and and impose those costs on the rest of the city. And this brings us to the second speed bump, interconnectedness. So think about something like sanctions, right? What is a sanction? Why should a sanction be pacifying? Well, a sanction is saying to an unchecked leader with a private incentive to, to go to war or an intangible incentive, some ideological gain, they're saying you're not paying attention to the costs. So we're going to we're gonna help you pay attention to the cost by giving you something to worry about. Right? By by basically making war look more costly to you and thus to try to steer you away from that path. Likewise, if you say, like, why would a mediator, why would we have mediators? Like, what does a mediator do? If that's help, is that actually helping a piece? Well, mediators are trying to resolve uncertainty. And to the extent that it's hard to find solutions to the commitment problem because it's tricky and it's politically challenging, mediators are actually really ingenious at finding ways to build trust and commitment. And and so, so every single thing we do that people talk about as peace building, if it's gonna work, has to make sense through one of these lenses.
0: From war fighters in Liberia to the gangs of Chicago, there's one intervention that Blackman has seen work exceptionally well at stemming cycles of violence.
1: You know, my day job is, is not solving international conflicts. It's working in cities and civil wars to find ways to stop that level of violence, so small group violence. I've run a lot of experiments of mediation strategies, alternative dispute resolution, all sorts of interventions that are designed to counter one of these things so mediation you know reducing uncertainty providing commitment and then one of the programs i stumbled on was something that's basically designed to combat misperceptions and passions
0: it's a program that we first discussed with jens ludwig in a previous episode cognitive behavior theory combined with employment
1: working with deadly shooters in chicago and working with really hardened criminals and people who are living very daily violent lives in west africa Typically, this combination of cognitive behavioral therapy on aggression control and on finding a new lifestyle, and then also some economic assistance to actually transition to that nonviolent lifestyle and, and alternative career has been hugely effective for these violent offenders. In some sense, almost like a, a huge proportion end up reducing their engagement in like a violent lifestyle. And so I think there's there's lots of lessons for that, for how we deal with rebels and and, and organized criminals and things. That's that's a research program that's ongoing. So using Blatman's framework of the five roads to
0: war and the three roads to peace, how does he see the war in Ukraine playing out?
1: This is so costly for Ukraine, and this is so costly for Russia, that they're very powerful incentives to, to stop the fighting at some point, maybe a few months from now. I just read from one economist, Ukrainian economist, that basically... Half of the national income every month is required to, pre-war national income, is required to fight this war. And their ports are blocked, which is something like 70% of their exports. So even if they were producing stuff, which they're not, they can't get money for it. So it's not clear that they have the money to do this. And of course the West is bankrolling them, and I'm happy to see that, but there has to be limits to that. It's also extremely costly for Russia. That makes me think that there's a good chance that after this next round of battles in a few months that maybe there's a stalemate where the best thing you could say about it is they've stopped fighting and Russia still sits on a chunk of Ukraine and refuses to give it up. And probably Ukraine and the West refuse to recognize that as legitimate, but there's no large scale fighting. There's probably low scale fighting. That's the best scale. That's to me the best case scenario that's driven by these powerful incentives. But again, there there are reasons why we fight and, and they could make it very difficult for that to be stable.
0: Blattman says that this framework should be incredibly useful as a tool for better understanding war and peace, but
1: cautions that we shouldn't turn it into a crutch. You know, there's always a question, Is like, how do I end this book? One way I could have ended this book was here, now that we understand why we fight, and now that we understand some paths to peace, if we only do the following, you know, things we're we're gonna have a more peaceful world and which is an optimistic book it's a hopeful book it's like great i know exactly what i have to do but i didn't want to write that kind of book because i think that's not the right way to think about it not because i'm talking about so many different kinds of violence but because actually figuring out which of the five is actually dominant in your situation and actually then figuring out what is the thing you could do to actually roll that back into is really hard and it's different in every case. So even if we have a common framework for thinking about all these things, for basically organizing all these explanations, and even if that helps us diagnose better, getting a diagnosis is, is, it's hard. So it it, it was, is imagine if I wrote like a medical book where I sort of told people how to diagnose disease better. I couldn't have a final chapter with sort of 10 steps to fix every disease, right? You'd ha- you actually have to build a whole system of doctors who are really good at like problem solving in really difficult cases and then testing out lots of treatments, especially all the treatments that don't yet exist. So that's the right way I think to think about peace is actually every, every patient is different and we need all of the doctors out there, whether they're members of that community or one side or an outside actor to actually just have a better approach to diagnosis, which is kind of like iterative problem solving, knowing that you're gonna get it wrong a lot of the time, and then recognizing that, you know, you don't actually have the best medicine. So we're also gonna have to invent better medicines. Big Brains
0: is a production of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review. Show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap, and Leah Cesarine.
1: Thanks for listening.